Welcome to the pod, everyone. A shout out to SGS. Hey, Rusty, why are we uh, partnering with SGS? Uh, uh, some, some, some good people there. Pretty excited about their sports coaching courses and sports courses. Keen to make them industry ready so when people leave, they're able to go and transfer it to any kind of industries, coaching, teaching, being an analyst, business, whatever it might be. So I think, uh, yeah, I think it's pretty exciting times, really. So what's so special about their degree courses that others won't be doing? I think it'll be lots of uh, real good partnerships, uh, opportunities for people to, to get into different contexts and learn and practice. It'll be feel very applied. People will be stretched and supported and will leave you know, ready to just go and thrive in the uh, big old world out there. SGS College is the home of Bristol's higher education sports programmes. The programmes are designed to develop unique, innovative and creative sports practitioners ready for industry. Do you want to be a coach or teacher of the future? Start your journey here at SGS College and become more than just a graduate. Visit sgscol.ac.uk to apply now. Cool, Rusty here with Mike Ashford, best dressed man in Leeds. How are you doing, Mike? You all right? Yeah, good, thank you. Yourself? Yeah, yeah, cool. Good. Just um, uh, as you can see, chilling on my bed. Your <laughs> work. This is what uh, this is what autonomy looks like. Yeah. Actually, it doesn't because there's other stuff going on in the house. I've been throwing it into the bedroom. Um, mate, cool to have you on. Excited to chat all things coaching. Um, I just had a, a day the other day with the rugby site, and they're still talking about you. <laughs> Still my head in a bit, if I'm honest. I'm sorry, it's not intentional. <laughs> cool, and that, uh, yeah, look, and, and so I really enjoyed our time together doing the filming for the rugby site. Uh, obviously, a lot of stuff going on around decision making, and I think it's a real interesting thing for coaches out there. Um, well, could, do you want to explain uh, why you're here and, and what we might talk about? Yeah, of course. I mean, um, I, I'm a PhD student at Leeds Beckett University um, with my supervisory team of Andy Abraham and Jamie Poulton. Uh, Andy, who was obviously on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. Um, and basically, we set out three years ago to follow in the last World Cup, where numerous newspaper articles pretty much highlighted the disparity between Northern and Southern Hemispheres around the, the fundamental issue around decision making. Um, and so we started this PhD to kind of identify what decision making actually is um, and how, how that can actually be developed if it is such an issue. Um, uh, and basically what's, uh, what that's led to is, um, I, I'd say, some, some different sort of thinking around how decision making can be developed um, and also how best to coach it in an in situ. So that's pretty much where we're up to at the moment. Um, so yeah, and you got a lot of words to write, I'm sure. You actually just triggered me straight away. On uh, we're, we're always going to go on tangents. Um, uh, <laughs> we've been doing our three C's workshop, and the first video I show, I don't know if you've ever seen it, is the Highlanders against the Chiefs, and it's titled on YouTube "Best Three Minutes of Rugby Ever," and it's three minutes of end to end, and and actually we then have a conversation and contrast that with a with a session over here in England. Um, and we um, talk about exactly that, about decision-making. What, what do you think their environment looks like? What do you think their coaching looks like? What constraints do you think they – what games do you think they play in their training? What does that yeah. – all of that look like? So um, it's been real interesting just to see the, 
you know, clearly there's lots of stuff that impact decision making. I think you're trying to, so your model would probably reference player, let me get it right, coach game. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, my, my perspective is is that the, the way decision-making should be coached is directly related to the demand of the game at that time. So we should create a practice um, that might be a single phase, double phase, or multiple, multiple phase, depending on what we're trying to achieve. So say, for example, we're trying to achieve a line break when we're numbers up. That might simply be a single phase, um, a single phase practice, because we're trying to repeat that, repeat that information to the player. So over and over again, that information is being repeated, and therefore the the players who are involved start to address their own capabilities to meet that aim, but also address each other's capabilities to meet that aim. Whereas if it's a situation where there's minimal time to a player. Uh, they're not required to think, they just have to react. So say a winger who receives the ball man on ball and has to get round the defender, then that, those situations would be, would be, for me, coached and educated within a much more game-based environment. So pretty much the, the precipice of my ideas and the data we've collected is that we should begin coaching to the environment that they're facing in situ. Cool. So let's just pick some of that apart. So by phase, what do you mean? You mean was it a rugby phase or a period of time? Uh, yeah, so a single rugby phase. Um, so from rock to rock or from mall to rock, etc. Cool. So I'm th- so that's the uh, 10 million two-on-ones I did when I was uh, from the age of 13 to... 37 I think <laughs> what you're talking about is exactly that I guess is it so there's a, a situation you spoke about a tanking situation where it's two and one three and two whatever and actually you would suggest that doing some repetition there away from the game would be useful to then hopefully take back into the game yeah not not just two on ones or three on twos but also so if we've got so I see it as if there's an opportunity to break down the defence and make a line break. It's because the information that is being provided it dictates that. So which would mean right the attack has more numbers than the defence. So you might replicate that with say a five on three or a seven v five. So from a rook situation, you might create a situation where the players have to fold into it naturally. So maybe round the corner or reshape from a specific start point. And so whilst it is a single phase drill, even though I don't like that word drill, um, it's still matching up and being representative of the game at that time. So not just three on ones and two V ones or three V twos, it's any numbers really. Cool. That, that makes me happier. Cause I was being, uh, I definitely did 10 million exactly two on ones where we ran around the cone and it was the same information every time of one defender, two attackers, I probably yeah. didn't need to actually gather that much information because I knew what was coming and probably got it right lots of the, lots of the time, although <laughs> lots of people didn't. Um, yeah. And then so and then and then that just led me on to something else, just a small trigger. So once again, how um, how would you um, create information flows between people around that? So. One of the questions I've been asking a lot of teams recently is, um, in five seconds, you're going to shout out, if you have the opportunity to 
as we just said, you've got an overload and there's perhaps space out wide. Uh, what would you shout? Three, two, one. No one ever has any clarity on what they say. However, coaches go, but it's called this. It's called yeah. Larry for left and Ronnie for right. Yeah. I've not heard either of those words. So how, what are you thinking around that type of stuff? Um, so this is where I'd probably draw on Pam Richards' work around common language. Um, like common language is so important because it almost pre it almost presupposes what decision is going to come. In rugby, at any age, you've got multiple players who are all trying to meet the same aim aim of scoring more more points than their opponent. So to just rely on shared information through action alone is going to lead to a suboptimal result. So if the players can construct a shared language around information and the players be in charge of that, it's much more powerful than a coach imposing that, that, that language. So, for example, um, you might use an example of the spacings between defenders. Uh, so if the spacings are quite narrow and the line's quite narrow as a defensive line, it might be it might be like stacked or closed. Uh, whereas if they're quite spread, then we might say they're spread. And that sim simple that single single piece of terminology starts to paint the picture of what information is unfolding in front of them. So, yeah, meaningful to them would be the the the, the important thing for me. Uh, and I knew yeah. someone would have done some cool work on it. Pam Richards, shout out. Yeah. Uh, because I'm just thinking about the Crusaders. So I know, for example, that when they do their theming, that they actually use their calls based upon their theming. So it actually is meaningful and connected. So, and I won't mention the name, but I spoke to a, a young player in the Prem who um, would speak about when he got the ball, there were 16 different calls for kicks. Yeah. <laughs> like a whole dictionary of people translating something into a word to then be translated by someone else to... And yeah, I guess that's that's quite challenging. Uh, but, my sense is that most playbooks, language, communication, information is is coach led as well. Yeah, and no, I probably I probably agree with you. And I, in my own coaching, probably fall into that trap as well because it's very easy at times just to say, right, we're going to call it this for a short term solution. Whereas, like you said, clarity and meaning is everything. If everyone understands what that, that term in its entity means, then it's almost, it's almost like a given that that decision is going to be correct if they interpret the information correctly. So I, I would call it co-construction. Oh, mate, posh word for it. I like it. Yeah, well, just like, right, the coach might set the problem of this is the picture, this is the information. But what are we going to do with this information? And then give the players the autonomy to come up with a term that would break that information down so a correct decision can be come to. Cool, mate. And you've set me off on two more tangents. One is <laughs> best attack coaches should be spending time with defence and vice versa. Oh. So they should be, you know, as we said, so when we were talking earlier about if you want to encourage um, people to wrap the ball up in tackles, they yeah. really want to. Uh, chat to the tack and give them five points for scoring off an offload and then yeah. see how they react. So I think that's uh, something for us to to, to consider. Uh, 
in how we coach. And the second thing, and, and it's um, a question really, something else I've noticed and something I, I see gradually moving from the game. Another player, and I won't mention the club, um, do you have any labels around the ruck? He said, yeah, we have 10, 20, 30, 40, 50. And I'm thinking, well, it's quite a lot of maths. Uh, and I said, well, what does 40 do? And he said, stands between 30 and 50. So the labels of, and, and the classic one for me is the defence ones around, I'm guard, I'm whatever label you call it. And by the way, I definitely coach this. Um, what's the impact of them? Because actually they then, I, in, in my eyes, they prevent further information sharing and they probably impact possibly negatively on decision making what are your thoughts so this i can attach quite closely some to some data data i've collected here with a professional team so defensively let's say on average a ruck at a premiership level is between three and four seconds uh, 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 an average normality um, so that means you've got three to four seconds to fold around the ruck if they're coming the, if they're going the same direction to then dictate who you've got as a player, as an attacking player, and nominate. To also nominate your own role and responsibility if there is a if there is a call, such as a pillar, guard, a, etc. And then you've also got to get off the line and make a tackle if you're required to. Now, what I see frequently in terms of coaching defence is that that coaches want their players to deal with threats, multiple threats. So threats to the defensive line making line breaks. And there are four occasions in my study, speaking with professional players, which led to missed tackles. And every one was because they had too much information to deal with. And most of that information was their own. So for example, so everyone these days runs multiple lines of running. So front line, back line, front door, back door. And the coaches are telling people to deal with the front door first. And then if the ball goes out the back, get off. But what if there's two front doors? So then all of a sudden, you end up with five, five pieces of information in your own head. And then you've got to make a tackle. And it was pretty much obvious that the reason why they missed this tackle was because it was paralysis by analysis, which, were, which an academic may call reinvestment. Okay, so they tried to consciously control every piece of information, which then led to a skill failure yep. in the tackle. And it was a it was a real nice moment of realization with these players when they went, "Oh yeah, I was just thinking too much." Because let's be honest, the the time between a phase and a tackle is minimal. So realistically, the information should be minimal. Yeah, cool. Uh, actually, what I'm and what I'm what I've also noticed in well, a couple of things really. One is those people that we're talking about; they're often got low numbers, so yeah. actually they haven't been put in that many challenging situations. So I, I do think that often and clearly the game has advanced to the extent that there'll be, you know, much more um, uh, unpredictable pictures in front of them. Hopefully. Um, and definitely layers to attack, multiple options. What I notice again is, though, that we're just giving them a label rather than telling them what cues to look for. So I yeah. think defence coaches should be coaching cues more often. So 
depth. How deep are they? Who's the first receiver? Who's looking at the ball? Who's got their hands up? And it sounds like lots of information, but you just should be playing guess who's getting the ball. Yeah. I mean, I think like what I see, say, at premiership level at times is that I call it defense, defending chested, so getting chest on, whereas I think we've lost the art of just decent technical tackle um, underhill and curry and it's just wonderful watching the tackle because it's it's a p- perfect model each time real low high line speed and it means that every single time that tackle is made the attacker put under pressure and this kind of leads me back to some of, some of my research which is all all decision making is is an interaction between the information that's available so you could use the word cue uh, some may say affordance or invitation um yes and that both of those words just mean information and all the all the decision is is an interaction between that information and the player's capability and that capability can made from their knowledge of the game their knowledge game unfolds so i would call that knowledge in the game and then the actions for the game that they have technically so i would and physically as well so are they able to make that tackle in the first place and i think defensively at times coaches can coach the knowledge of and knowledge in and miss the action for yeah so can i try and translate that yes of course my language yeah i think you're talking about that the decisions that some of the decision making is definitely best on some of the stuff that's happened in the game so they might start to see some patterns and that might influence their decision making by actions is essentially so um, some players, so I, I would have tended to tackle high because I had two dodgy shoulders. Uh, Jim Evans played at Quinns. He said I uh, made two low tackles and dislocated a shoulder on both occasions. One <laughs> um, of Fred's friends always tackles low because he's been told to tackle low, so that's probably something else that's interesting. He got concussed on Saturday. Um, I've not seen him make a different tackle, so I think one of the interesting conversations here is around... So. I think of it like, so Mike Beale, so Mike Beale's the coach at Rangers. I said to Mike, why didn't you make it as a player? He said, because at 18, my left foot was 18 and my right foot was three. Yeah. I would contest that Tom Curry and Sam Underhill have high ages of multiple tackling skills. So they yeah. can go low, they can rip the ball, they can hold up, they can... Uh, and one of those two players definitely told me he finds it easier to defend at the higher level than at the than he did when he was playing younger rugby because it's a little bit more predictable and you can then start to choose your choose your action or your weapon of choice. Yeah. I think my I think my question I'd be interested in and what have you noticed around the action stuff? So do you see that you know have you noticed the players that are really skillful especially around tackling and have you uh, might not be something you've looked into but actually have a look at people's the, the impact of coaching on that um it's variety isn't it it's uh, so um i mean from from the literature can I just view, clarify, we are burning all tackle bags as a result of this yeah <laughs> well yeah exactly so if you put a tackle bag in, in front of someone yeah it might be nice for the shoulder contact it might be nice for getting used to perhaps hitting with the same foot same shoulder but it isn't a response to information. It's not a response to game-specific information. So if you want to work on tackle variety and tackle technique, 
my advice is work on tackle variety and tackle technique with information that you're going to have in the game. Yeah. So multiple different positions running at you. So different sizes, different power, different physical capabilities. So you learn to manage your own body and your own technique in response to the challenge and the information that's in front of you. Yeah, that would make sense. I mean, and and so uh, although she has a hitting tackle bags, definitely didn't work. Um, and so, uh, and, and what have you? I mean, your research so far and and your experiences. What have you noticed about coaches? So when they're doing this stuff we're talking about, well, what have you noticed when they're less so? What kind of coaching behaviours are you seeing? Um, I mean. I've seen some really good stuff actually, especially around academy rugby, where it's very, very much a small-sided, single-phase practice, where it is a very controlled contact environment, um, and we know that a controlled contact environment actually reduces injury risk as well. So it's almost like a double-edged sword. Um, so almost like two v two, three v three, single phase or double phase, where the the coaches are shaping some intentions around what they want them to achieve and then allowing players to to explore different movement different movements different techniques in the tackle and the best coaches at this then are the ones who feed back really constructively and really specifically so they might say great tackle but this is why it was a great tackle you went with same foot same shoulder you you clamped your hands together you finish off your hit. So then that player has a full feedback loop around why that was successful against that one player. And that is so powerful. And vice versa, if perhaps it wasn't the right tackle, there might be a question or an instruction around what they could have done differently considering the capabilities of who they were up against. So that, that's the real positive practice I've seen around the tackle. Yeah, nice. And, uh, and they might give the feedback to the coach first as well. Uh, all their peers might give feedback to them. Other other forms of feedback are available. I was um, it just reminded me a bit of the, of the Super Rugby, one of the Super Rugby franchises. I know one of the things they measure in attack is how many times we create situations that we're talking about five on three, yeah, three on one, and they just then look at. So they are searching for opportunities to to create those opportunities, and then they're going and how many did we take? Yeah. And that's all rugby is, right? That's all it is, really. It, let's be honest, it is, a, it is a very simple game in its essence when you take away the laws and the rules. Yeah. In the fact that you are trying to find space in order to progress the ball towards your opponent's try line. So, yeah. And that's yeah, how you say you might not have Nadolo and you can, you can have a one-on-two and that is, that's a successful outcome for your team as well. Yeah, you spoke. Uh, we we spoke a bit around so your kind of framework around around game, uh, player, coach. I'm finding it hard because it's player environment, game in hockey, and I, <laughs> uh, which is peg, which is a nice word, and I can remember it. Uh, you spoke a bit about the game stuff. So um, two questions. One is, um, and this has got me thinking as well. Like, so clearly the game evolves in rugby as possibly more than. Lots of other sports, constant, you know, we'll have a World Cup, there'll definitely be some trial stuff going on, rules, etc. Um, that has big implications for coaching. Massively. So if I'm a 
player, which I am, who played 20 years ago, which I did, then the reality of 20 years ago is it's pretty obsolete. Yeah. Lots of it's obsolete. Some of it's obsolete. Um, so how does that fit in? So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to go, look, tell me about the, the proportion of the game stuff. Second thing we're going to do is Andy Abraham has been sacked from what the under-13s. <laughs> string of poor results. Andy's touchline behaviour has got out of hand. Um, and we're going to talk about that. So first session, second, you know, repeat sessions. What, what's Mike thinking about coaching in that environment? So that's so in answer to your first question, it's um, there's a Bernard Soups um, produced a book called The Grasshopper in 1987, which I'd advise anyone to anyone to uh, read. What was his name? What was his name? Bernard Soups, and it was it's called The Grasshopper: uh, Life, Games, and Utopia. Oh wow! And it's it's pretty much a book that that kind of defines what a game is in in its true essence, yeah. and. If I'm going to describe it, so a game is formed from, a game can only be a game if it has a goal that you need to win. Okay, so the goal in rugby is to score, is to outscore your opponent. Okay? Um, but then with the game, there has to be some, some rules. Okay? Because otherwise, to meet, that, to meet that aim, people might just throw the ball forwards to 40 metres. Or they might just stand in the try line and put the ball down over and over again. So rules have to be there because they create the means in, in which a player can achieve that goal. Uh, and so when rule changes are made, the means also change in, in which how players can actually achieve the goal. So what I'm getting at here is that the game in its essence of rugby then all, all of a sudden creates an exhaustive menu of actions and decisions that can ever, can ever be done at any one time. So that has massive implications for decision-making because if players have knowledge of that and knowledge of the rules, they are then able to shape their intentions more effectively. Um, so in response to your second question, a colleague of mine, Sergio Lauribasial, produced a, a paper with Cliff Mallett uh, over in Australia around serial winning coaches. And they basically found that one of the key fundamental characteristics of, of serial winning coaches is that they are able to see into the future. Yeah. They're able to have vision and predict rule changes. So in answer to the first session on Otley under 13s, my, my first instinct well, this would be an attempt. By no means would it be a good attempt. Would be to Mate, try... It'd be better try. than Andy, because Andy's just been sacked. He hasn't won a game. <laughs> he hasn't won a game yeah. in two years. Well, it would be to, to try and see the game in its essence of what it would be in the next four years. So, considering the debate around contact, concussion, considering the de debate around speed of scrummaging, um, the, the size of players, the collisions, uh, these things are all going to have a massive impact in the future of how the sport is shaped. So therefore, that then, that then may also have an impact on the exhaustive menu of actual actions and decisions that we can actually use. Yeah. So therefore, we may be coaching the actions and decisions to our players for the game in four years' time 
rather than for the game at the moment. So that would be my answer. <laughs> yeah, cool. And, and that would be my answer. I would talk about the game of the future. I would definitely be some classic examples where people aren't thinking like that. Uh, you're a prop. You can't kick. Uh, you have to do this. We have to build phases. Yeah. You have to present the ball long and strong. And um, I see lots of, you have to stay square. So yesterday, George, I tweeted it, but George Ford scored a great try by just running across the pitch and and (laughs) hard at someone with some multiple support options around him. And the defender struggled to find an action for the information in front of him. Um, Yeah. And but I know lots of Prem players who are told you have to run square and you have to pass. That's yeah. It. So some of the stuff that's gone out of the game are things like, for me, switches, loops. I don't see that stuff as much. And I mean, what's your sense around? So see lots of rugby league shape. You're in rugby league country, so be careful what you say. Uh, lots of that would be dominant. That would be eighty nine percent of certainly what I see on the rugby pitches of that kind of. Uh, relative movement of players, one one in the front door, one in the back door. Yeah, and yeah, I, I think we see that at the highest level of the game because defenses have improved over the last twenty years. Like, and that you can almost argue that has come from rugby league as well. That that high press in your face defence. So the attack, the attacking shape, then had to improve. The attacking frameworks had to improve to then break them down. Um, but I see that as a so I see the game of rugby as a multiple set of problems, okay, that we need to solve. All right. So an example of a problem might be we need to score we need to score points. And another problem might be we need to progress the ball up the field. Uh, and those problems then need some solutions that, that come to them. And we're seeing at the highest level of the game at the moment the same solutions from the majority of the teams. Yeah. Which are which are, right, win, win the contact area. So, in other words, get over the game line. Produce quick ball that is less than three seconds, so the defence then can't reform. And then use multiple lines of running to get the ball to space. And why they use multiple lines of running is pretty much to make a defender insecure and to make a mistake and go on to the wrong player. So it's a fairly logical attacking solution. But the issue is, is when everyone does it, everyone becomes used to the information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They see through the deception. So the challenge is now is what, who's, the, who's the next person, who's the next coach, who's going to come up with the new <clears throat> original tactical solution? So what's the next original tactical solution? And that, that, that for me is fascinating. That's what the game's all about. Yeah, I'm on a uh, WhatsApp chat that I was being fairly disruptive in last night with lots of hockey coaches, and there's a, there's some pretty high-level uh, hockey players on it, and they they are openly, you know, they just said we we just um we just haven't been coached tactically around this stuff, and we're not, and and now they are, by the way, but just this innovation, and you know, one I met the head of coaching for Croatian football, he said we want to be the most unpredictable team in the world now that they're not unpredictable to themselves yeah it's a bit like when I, I've coached a bit of sevens and you know so like, we're going to play seven in the line and people freak out but the reality is <laughs> teams don't train against them yeah it's a, diff- 
they don't see that information because they assume there's a sweeper lots of the time. Yeah, and like you, and it, it, I call it learn helplessness, where players come to a new situation, a new tactical framework, and they disagree with it, but they disagree with it because it's different to what they've learned before. Yeah, they disagree with it because it's 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 implausible or impossible. Um, and I believe we should be coaching players to be adaptable to multiple solutions and multiple systems, especially in a pathway or coming through. Because players might go to different teams and might be involved in different, in different frameworks. Yeah, that's the... Um, so there's something else there that I think is interesting. And uh, we did the three seasons of the night and there's a lot of first-team coaches there and it was definitely... Um, be something there that I've experienced as a coach where you've got a power dynamic in the team where <clears throat> actually the most alpha person doesn't see the possibility. So, and partly because they don't have the actions currently to be able to do it. So, yeah. and he who shouts loudest. Um, have you experienced any stuff around that where actually you've had to think of different ways of of influencing people. I think it's the same in coaching and coach development. I think a lot of yeah. this is exactly the same. A lot of coaches would experience learned helplessness and would need some support with it. Yeah, I mean, so in my in my conceptual framework in the so it goes it goes game in the middle, yeah. player is the next circle, and then coach on the outside circle. Well it's gonna start uh, with an I soon, so it's gonna be pig. That's just yeah. player igloo. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the the game is so so the coach on the outside is I've pretty much given like two key characteristics of the coach. The first one is to is to co-construct a common frame of reference. So in other words, that everyone can see, communicate, and act on the same information co co, co adaptively. Okay, in coordination. But then the other one, so that is when everyone's on the same page. But let's be honest, not everyone's always on the same page, as you've just said there. So the other, the other tool is individual tactical solutions. So those individual conversations with players, where a, a player may have the ability to see information themselves and come up with an individual solution. Because let's be honest, rugby is simply, my, my colleague Mark Helm, He's an S&C coach in my office. And he literally sees sport as, will it make the boat go faster? Okay, so will it, will it make us achieve what we want to achieve? So if one senior player or senior coach doesn't, doesn't want that change, then it's about, it's about shaping another player to give them a, a simple solution that may spark that change. Do you, do you see what I mean there? So you might know you have a centre or uh, a loose forward who has the undenying ability to play in the wide channels. So they hold their width in the wide channels, make two line breaks, and all of a sudden that becomes so, so much more powerful. Yeah, success would be important for those people. Yeah, it's like a vicarious experience. It's a positive experience that then sells that more. Yeah. So, it's not always going to be around everything being shared. It's also around those individual interactions to, to make players aware of their positive capabilities. Nice. 
couple of questions, obviously. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Seeing the same thing. Um, so there's a couple of things. One is, and, and um, I, I mentioned this the other night, I actually love the fact that everyone sees the same thing in Exeter. So I think that's cool. They see the same yeah. thing. They get into certain areas of the pitch. They know what's going to happen. There's probably a couple of individuals who have some individual tactical solutions. Uh, so I'm thinking Henry Slade. I'm thinking Jack Knoll. I'm thinking yeah. probably Cowan Dickey who can... Um, what are your experiences around connecting those people up with the group would be one question. And yeah, I think the second question is similar really around creating connections between people in, in groups. So clearly yeah. teams that have won the World Cups have, you know, England and last two New Zealand have had amazing combinations of players that maybe don't need a shared language as much or it's certainly briefer and easier. Yeah. Um, uh, in, in response to your first question, Exeter an example, uh, not only in terms of individual tactical solutions, but I, I've seen original tactical solutions from them over the last two years in the premiership yeah uh, i'll say what they are because like it's just but they yeah, are they, like there so it might be for example like their support so they're often putting support in a in a straight line as opposed to a flat line as yeah exactly so that that for me is an original tactical solution for breaking down defenses so i think they're doing excellent work there in terms of the individual stuff i i wouldn't i i'd probably Hazard a guess and make the assumption that that their shared their shared communication and their their common frame of reference is probably built around the strengths of those three players that are mentioned. Yeah. So the likes of Henry Slade, Jack Knoll, Cowan Dickey, who are game breakers, they're going to make things happen. That I imagine their attacking frameworks and defensive frameworks are built around their strengths and their capabilities. And then everything else can build from there. Um, and in response to the second question around how do you build this, I, I see it as a constant, a constant ebb and flow between on-field and off-field preparation. To so, because at the end of the day, you're going to have to construct a language, your own language that matches up to your own actions. And those actions fall across 15 players to coordinate their behaviour at the same time. So, so I call it declarative knowledge to begin with, understanding why. If players have an understanding of why, they're more likely to know what the right decision is at the right time. Cool. Um, Just an observation. Yeah. I don't think we do that well enough. No. I think it's a big... You're doing this... Why? Just do it. Yeah. And where that interaction is so powerful because, so uh, an example I'll use in my own coaching is I talk about the idea of unselfish lines of running. Um, and players, uh, especially at a university level, all they want to do is have their hands on the ball because they want to carry, they want to look good. But they don't realise that that unselfish line that creates space elsewhere is what makes them look good because they've held two players. Yeah. So they're, they're the things I'm looking for in players. But and that's just an example of if we if we can sell the why, then we we then have a mutual understanding between information 
that's given in the game and what the correct course of action is. Yeah, no, off the ball for me would be something that we probably don't attend to enough as coaches, so we're generally looking at the ball. And secondly, I've made a real effort recently because I've become more mindful of it to to give people some feedback of their impact off the ball and get them to yeah. understand that actually, if you stand there, what's the impact there? What does that create here? And and that's someone who didn't score a try in the last four years. So hopefully, <laughs> try I was creating opportunities for other people. So how do you see then? So you, you know, and what you said about Exeter is is true and for me should be normal. So we built a uh, a framework around our strengths and you know and, and weaknesses of our players, quite frankly. Um, yeah. But then I just see people copy and pasting one three three one two four two, whatever New Zealand do next year will come over here in in a year's time type stuff. Yeah. What, what's your sense? What's your experiences around that? Oh well, I have a great analogy for this. So, um, if you imagine like an original piece of music, so I'll take Pachelbel Cannon for example. All right, so very well. What's that? Okay, so bear with me. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It's, uh, Cannon. Yeah, so it's a it's a, an original orchestral piece that has been built with a number of a number of instruments. Okay, and that original piece was fantastic. It was an original solution, but every orchestra across schools across the world continues to play that piece. All right, it continues to be repeated, and it still sounds the same. It still sounds pretty good but it's nowhere near as good as what that original was because it was written and orchestrated by that group. They know it. And I, I, see, the light, I see the likeness in the fact where coaches like, we're happy to give away our tactics because by the time they've constructed and, and, and reproduced what we've already done, we've then adapted. And I, I, I feel that in copying and translating other people's tactical solutions, we end up in a tactical stalemate where it then turns into whoever has the physical capability is going to be the one who gets on top. Does that make sense? Mate, that's the World Cup. There are yeah. teams playing at the World Cup who know no different to the game of the present or a year or two ago. And so I, I see this. I'm watching a couple of the, the non-Tier 1 teams thinking, you could go out and inspire some people or you could go and change the paradigm in your country. However, you are currently, you've employed some foreign coaches, you're spending yeah. a lot of money on them and they're going to go in a few years' time and it just breaks me. And actually, oh. they're not even developing their own coaches. Yeah. I, I, I found myself um, getting increasingly frustrated watching the Tonga-England game. I was expecting Tonga to come out and play rugby. Play Tonga? And they they play some offloading game, be really physical, look look to look to play through England. But instead, what I saw was a team that wanted to deny England getting a bonus point. And I just thought it went against everything that Tongan rugby was about. Yeah. Uh, and I like it's no disrespect to Tonga, but it, it it was frustrating because the World Cup is a spectacle and rugby should be a spectacle. And we, we did a study, I think it was about five years ago, with UEFA and around football and how the style of football tended, tended to match up to 
the culture of their society and their countries. Yeah. <clears throat> and I, if we lose that, then we lose the essence of what rugby is about. Yeah, which is why I, I enjoy the way Japan play because that's yeah. that's a, that's a bit of a paradigm shift for them. Yeah, yeah, play play fast, uh, just tempo, breaking down defensive lines. Um, Fiji, the first half against Australia, was another great example. Um, so th there are examples of it. It's just can we, uh, the challenge is: is can we get away from these tactical stalemates? Yeah, Fiji is an interesting one, isn't it? Because of their because of their environment, because of their game, because of what exists in their country, and did a podcast uh, about this. Uh, they play on pretty small pitches, so actually their tactical game. So I was when I was watching them in phase play, their phase stuff looks quite awkward, whereas their stuff around the ball and their oh, it just looks like they're in flow. So I'm always yeah, I mean that's their that's a DNA, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And they should live it and express it, like. It. Um, yeah, but yeah, that is something that I find quite frustrating: is that everyone's playing the same way. I'm dying yeah. slowly. Um, let's go back to what the under thirteens. Uh, Andy's still sacked. Um, <laughs> He's gone there. He's trying to find another club. Um, what about a season with, you know, coaching, uh, just because you obviously do that anyway, but coaching for a season, what type of things would I expect to see if I came and watched one of your sessions? What planning would go into it? What would a session plan look like? What's, you know, what do you think when I ask you that stuff? Well, the, the first thing I'd do is shape some long-term expectations. So I'd go and... I'd go and coach a session and, well, no, I wouldn't even coach. I'd just say, let's play. Let's just play rugby. Okay, I just want to see some some small-sided games and we can begin to then construct what I call like a needs analysis and identify and observe and make assumptions around, well, where, where are these kids now and where can we get them to by the end of this season? So we can construct some long-term aims and long-term expectations. And with that, then we can begin to come up with themes that run over a long periods of time. So, say, to like six weeks. The first theme might be uh, something simple as progressing the ball and stopping them from progressing the ball defensively. So, there's a, a reoccurring three theme attacking, attacking wise and defensively. So, that would then shape what the season looks like in terms of, right, we know for the first six weeks we're working on these themes. What's, what's our learning outcome for tonight? What are we hoping to achieve? What are our session objectives? And a, a typical session plan for me would always look the same. So, I've first heard. of all... I've heard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, learning outcome... Auckland grids. Auckland grids, first of all. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely not, no. <laughs> well, what I'm trying to get at is a session plan... I use the same framework for it, which is Bob Muir's coach planning and reflective framework, which he's uh, so fashionably titled the diamond diagram. Okay, or the not so diamond diagram now. Uh, and it's formed of session objectives to what we hope to achieve, our expectations, which then have two lines coming out of to practice structure. So what type of structure are we going to use? What activities are we going to use? Coach behaviors. So what behavior can we use as a coach? 
and then learner engagement. So how do our coach behaviors and practice structure allow the learners to engage with the session objectives that we've set out? So we are then, every time we would then go into a session, we're directly driven by what we hope to achieve and the expectations in the session. Does that make a little bit of sense? Yep, yep, makes sense. And would you be, um, can you choose the right word? Would you be, I want to say bound, constrained. Uh, would you step, I mean, if you were seeing stuff outside of your session outcomes, what would you be thinking, feeling, doing? Well, so coaching is a naturalistic decision-making process, isn't it? It's about reacting in situ. Um, yeah, if I see something good, I'll praise it and try and be specific with it, yeah. regardless of whether it's aligned to the session objectives or not. But there is also a reflection and action piece where I need to reconsider, I've got an objective here. So it's a constant... It's a constant uh, transition between my overall aims and my overall expectations with this group of players and also their experiences and how I can shape them in training from a naturalistic and reactive point of view. Cool. So I, I would call it uh, just an interaction between classical decision-making over time and naturalistic decision-making whilst I'm coaching. And that would just transition between the two. Cool. So what I think I'm hearing, translating into my language, is yeah. you've got a direction of travel for your session. However, you as a coach would adapt at certain times and you would be reflecting on, on why. Yes. And probably just checking in with yourself. Because um, my sense is, and, and having been a teacher for two years and experienced this, that we can become very constrained by the session objectives. Uh, and, and I think we just chatted earlier about um, and this, this will come into the engagement piece really around actually how do we individualize it? So how do we ensure that it's not just team stuff? So I speak to a lot of Prem players, you know, what percentage of your training feels like it's just big picture team shape structure stuff. It's a high number. Yeah. And, I think this is where uh, I do some work with academy coaches across across the country and I met with one this week and he's come up with a, a real clear mental model and performance vision of what rugby looks like to him and it's some amazing work. And basically what we then said was, well, that's the big picture from a team point of view. You, you now have a real clear vision of what the capabilities are and what the capabilities are required to achieve that vision. So what does that then look like for the 20 senior academy players you have? So uh, in the academy, they have individual development plans, IDPs, yeah. which pretty much start to identify some clear work on and developmental experiences for the players. Now, this is where the, these can be used and translated to any, any form of rugby. So whether it's school rugby, club rugby, we can do these with our players and start to identify clear areas that they need to work on. And that can then form the first page of your session plan. So every single time you start a session, you've got every single player's individual objectives there. And then you've got the content of your session. And then you can, you can align the two. You can see whether that session that you've planned starts to meet up to those individual capabilities and what you're asking them to develop on. 
So it's a double-edged sword of developing as a team, whilst also developing them as individuals. Cool. Can I give you some examples? Uh, um, I would have a whiteboard, I think. If you give people a bit of an idea of what the session is, then they can write some stuff on there. It could be individual, could be collective, could be ways of connecting people up. Uh, the other day I asked a kid, and I think this is a good question for coaches to ask, how can I support you today before the session because I'm, I'm just bouncing into a session? Uh, da, 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 da. Uh, what can I do to make you wobble? He said, well, if I miss my first kick, I'm, I'm having a shocker. I'm like, oh. <laughs> sign conversion to start the session, right footed from the right-hand side. You're going to have seven more kicks in the session. It's up to you how you, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll put them in as and when. But I, I do think asking the right questions or, you know, or knowing the information in advance around their development plans um, would be something that would be useful for, for more coaches. Yeah, and I think... Players, well, I, I do think the players should own this. So I, 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 definitely, definitely. Um, I think... Uh, someone's in the room yeah someone's in the room so um, don't worry about it so I think uh, one th we had a conversation with this coach earlier this week and um, basically what we spoke about is players might put down on their IDPs what they think they need to work on <clears throat> but if that isn't then revisited or audited or identified consistently then they're probably going to lose track on that and I think little subtle subtle updates on that with the player so maybe that's done through feedback in training or maybe it's done with a constant checkup on the idp from week to week so they're they're fundamentally aware of what they're trying to achieve consistently and that that subtle behavior from the coach to say we need to have more attempts on that in training or i need to create more attempts from you gives that player the insight that oh He's constantly checking up. They're constantly checking up on my development. Great. So it, not only is it great for the player's development, but it's also great for them psychologically in terms of a relationship with the coach. Yeah, and I mean, and there's lots of ways. So using a second ball to, and, and where you feed the second ball could be a way of, of doing that. You know in the future they're going to be gamifying development plans. So that's, I mean, that's where it would be for me, yeah. Once again, especially with the young kids, they're then owning it. They're then thinking about it. It's it's progressing. Uh, there'll be lots of stuff with that. Two two other questions I've got for you. Um, three questions actually. Uh, if you wanted to win a game at the weekend, top three things you would do. Oh, bear, in mind uh, bear, in mind uh, bear in mind you are an expert in decision making. Top three things you would do. Um, well, the first thing I would do as a coach is make sure that we have clarity on what we're trying to achieve on a Thursday night. So there's pointless me going on a Saturday and telling them what I want them to do, because by that time the learning's already done. Yeah. So it, literally, they should as soon as Saturday comes. I believe that that group of however many players it is should have a shared view of how they're going to achieve that goal. And if that shared view isn't working, they have a they then have a, another option to go to following. Flip it on its head. Maybe Tuesday night should be team run night, uh, where it's you know where the opposition uh, know how the team at the weekend are going to play, but you don't tell the team. And then yeah. Thursday night is unpicking that and 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 and, and deepening the learning, perhaps. 
Massively, yeah. I mean, that in, or it might be the case that the opponent we're playing against, we know, we know perhaps we've got more capabilities than them. So it might be a case of Tuesday night, right, we're going to try these two, we're going to layer on two new things, yeah. two new solutions. And we're going, to, we're going to repeat it tonight. And then on Thursday, we're going to shine it. We're going to make sure it's ready for Saturday. So that might be another, another example. Cool. So that's, that's your first thing, clarity, Thursday night. Yeah. Two more things, you're going to win the game. You've got to win the game or you're losing your job and you and Andy are down the job centre. Uh, trust in the process. I'm not going to sell my soul to, uh, I mean, the, uh, I'm lucky in the context I'm in that if I do lose, obviously going away from your example, I'm probably not going to get sacked as a coach. But uh, I, I believe that if you choose to play in a way that meets the strengths of your participants, then you trust that that way. Yeah. Cool. Third thing. Go on. What's your third? What's your third thing? Third thing. Um, I love your thinking face. Yeah. It's been too easy for you for so far, obviously. <laughs> I, I think it's just about um, challenging individuals to do to do something a little bit differently than what they've done before. So maybe the week before they made two line breaks. Maybe you just give them right. Let, let, all I want to hear from you today is communicating where the space is in front of you. And that little challenge then, if that leads to them five line breaks in that game, that's job done. Those little individual challenges that fall under the shared tactical framework but begin to challenge that individual's development. Nice. We would coach well together because I would definitely be thinking around the emotional side of stuff as well and the, and the, and the, and the story of the game. So that's, uh, that's exciting. My second question, um, and by the way, I'm, when we were speaking about language, I coached some under-nines the other day and they had the best piece of language I've heard in 2019 and that was kidnap the ball. That's how you get the like you kidnap it. <laughs> loved. Uh, how are you reflecting? A uh, couple of simple uh, clues for coaches around reflection in action and post-session um in action uh, is plan for your behaviors so plan for your coach behaviors and what i see a lot of coaches is that they're constantly talking and i would challenge coaches to sometimes be silent and sometimes observe stand back and start to create some informed assumptions about how the session's going in terms of what your expectations were. And the, in terms of reflection on action, so post-session, if you plan in a way that allows you to reflect, it's much easier to reflect. So the reason why that, that framework's called the Coach Planning and Reflective Framework is because, one, it gives you the, your expectations through your session objectives, and then it makes you consider were your behaviours, your intended behaviours and your intended practice structure, were they appropriate to allow the, the learners to engage with those session objectives in the first place? So you give yourself a direct framework to reflect on. Nice, right, that's strong. Last question, uh, co-coaching, top two tips. Oh, uh, you, and, uh, you and Andy have been reunited. You've been given a job with Halifax under-12s. Yeah, coaching top tips. Clarity, and what I mean by clarity is, have you argued before the session? If you haven't, then some, then some, 
someone's probably not giving the full the full story. Um, as a, I see as coaching as a mutual process, especially when you're coaching with others, of coming to the same conclusion. So, because not everyone's going to agree on everything, but if everything's shared and on the table, then you can come to the best model for that. So it's about clarity. It's about making sure that everything is shared. I'm going to mention your name every time I use that quote. <laughs> I've been playing around with co-coaching cards where we actually sit down beforehand and we co-create some stuff that is really around our behaviours and, and how we're going to interact and help support the players. Yeah. Second, second co-coaching tip? Uh, plan. Plan for engagement, plan for behaviours again. I think as coaches we tend to really focus on the planning of practice structure around yeah. how we shape the game, how we're going to shape the practice. And I think but, that's what coaches reflect upon too much as well is the what stuff. Yeah, whereas if we're honest, our behavior, we only have two tools to create a learning environment. The practice that we create and the behavior we use. And the behavior we use is just as powerful, if not more, in specific interactions. If you plan for those as a collective coaching team, it can be so powerful. My class, I've only got a few one-worders because... Uh, because you're a you're a, you're a, a man who's sometimes hard to read. I'm just you. Just, <laughs> I just want to. I just. I'm curious. Um, uh, coaching. What, what what is coaching? Or no, you you got to give me a one word answer. Coaching. Oh, okay. What does it make you think? Coaching. Learning. Otley. Enemy. I'm at Harrogate. <laughs> Andy Abraham uh, Boss <laughs> oh, wait, I thought you were going to say legend uh, Leeds, <laughs> Leeds Beckett uh, Home Rugby World Oh nice mate Kino Mate look I've loved it That's been class uh, I can talk to you all day Clearly there's, yeah. some, there's some people trying to get in the room you're in um, <laughs> Where can people find you? Um, just at Leeds Beckett my email address is just m.ashford at leedsbeckett.ac.uk Twitter is mashford15 so yeah, open book happy to speak to anyone so more than welcome cool mate awesome it's been a pleasure have a cool day and yourself mate thank you we'll speak soon awesome cheers mate